Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once faked his own death to get out of a bad dinner date, Mr. Ryan Siebold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It is going well. It's going well. It's going uh, better than you on that date, man, huh? Yeah. So to the listeners, just going to put this out there. The date was with Jason, and he won't fucking let it go. <laughs> he just keeps bringing it up, and now it's going to be on Listen, air. Listen, I'm sorry. You history. wouldn't talk about it with me off the air, so I had to bring it here up in front of our listeners. Go ahead. Well... I will say it was hard to fake my own death and then still come on the show with you to continue the podcast uh, busted. How <laughs> much uh, I can do about that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, you're a hard one to go out to eat with. You chew with your mouth open. Okay. You're an open mouth chewer and uh, that's weird. I don't want to be around it. It's gross. Um, yeah. So I just had to, I faked my own death uh, with seppuku. Okay, but the thing. <laughs> it was just it was a really weird way to do it. So 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 let me paint the picture for you guys. Like me and Ryan are sitting here, we're having what I thought was a fine time, and all of a sudden, you know, Ryan Ryan like starts busting out his phone, okay? Now I don't know about you guys here, but like I don't know, maybe I'm just old school or something like that. I'm not down with the busting out the phones and like scrolling or texting other people. Like you and I are here for dinner, let's be in the moment, let's be present, let's have a nice conversation, right? And then all of a sudden Ryan just keels over and lets his face fall into his soup and at first I'm like okay this motherfucker's trying to get out of it I, solid seven and a half minutes guy didn't come up for air yeah and but so that took like, okay. that's a training man like you have to appreciate the commitment to the bit like I worked so hard <laughs> Michael Felt I was gonna style. say dude like so now that we're on the other side of it you have to uh, I was gonna say you have to have done some sort of training to be able to like I absolutely survive did. that long seven and a half minutes without breathing in soup yeah uh, it's a new skill I have. I put it on my LinkedIn profile. Um, you know, can hold breath in soup for seven minutes. Uh, pretty solid. <laughs> that sounds like that's that, that sounds like a skill that was uh perfected on like a porn porn set. Well, I don't want to get overly graphic on here. Never mind. Uh, perhaps edit that part out, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I will not, sir. No, I mean, yeah, it's Florida. You I look- mean, I got. You learn to hold your breath doing all kinds of things in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think we all knew where I was going with that one. We yeah. I mean, it usually it's like, uh, it was the, I think it was the first two songs in dark side of the moon. So I would get that going <laughs> and see how many songs in I could get through before I had to come up for air. I think I made it through yeah. two. Um, I almost three, not quite the great gig in the sky. Uh, once you start getting to that, <laughs> I had to definitely take a big gasp. Um, it also, uh, interesting bit of trivia. It depends on the soup. 
Uh, you would think <laughs> that it's just a breath situation. It's not. The viscosity of the soup can uh, definitely fuck uh. with your brain a little bit to see where you're going to when you need to come up for air. It's it's all psychological, this big psychological game. Uh, but I will say it worked, and I was able to cut the date short. Uh, but, you know, now I just have to hear it uh, about it for eternity, so whatever. Yeah, little did he know that he would be stuck on a radio program with me a year and a half later, so... Sucks to be you, buddy. Couldn't get away from you that easily. <laughs> hey, what do you got for us and the listeners this week? This week, we're covering Harakiri from Masaki Kobayashi. Um, from 1962, IMDb has this as, When a ronin requesting seppuku at a feudal lord's palace is told of the brutal suicide of another ronin who previously visited, he reveals how their pasts are intertwined, and in doing so, challenges the clan's integrity. Uh, this is from 1962. We got a lot going on here. We got, uh, this one, the jury prize at 1965 con film festival, again, being an international film, you know, these movies tend to get released at various dates throughout, um, especially back in the sixties, I guess it also got an Academy award nomination for best foreign language film. This was a beautiful movie by uh, Kobayashi. I'd never seen a Kobayashi film. Had you Jason? No, Ryan, actually, I have not. This was my first. And I was kind of interested to find that, like, he didn't actually do that many films over the course of his career. Correct. It seems like the ones that he did were very prolific, but that he didn't have a giant body of work the way that Kurosawa did or someone like him. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was uh, in the same boat because once I saw this, I actually really did enjoy this film. And I wanted to know what else I could watch by him. Answer, not too much. Uh, except <laughs> Unless you for, want that nine-hour epic that right, he came out around you saw the same that too? time. Like, yeah, The Human Condition. Yeah. Nine hours and 40 yeah. minutes of not, uh, The Human Condition. Um, which, it's apparently a trilogy, but you're supposed to watch it all together at the same time. Like, yeah, right. Um, I would say that by the end of that, I would feel The Human Condition. Uh, just hopeless <laughs> and ready to drown myself in soup. So (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, there's another uh, film by Bella Tarr called Santan Tango. And I believe that's like that's not even a trilogy. It's one film that's nine hours long. And that's actually available on Canopy, my beloved Canopy, which is that free streaming service uh, that you use with your library card. Yep. And yeah, like so I, I, I haven't seen. Bellatar is, again, one of those people that has, like, five or six films to his name, kind of like a Tarkovsky or Kobayashi or any of these guys that we're talking about where, um, you know, they they did a lot with a little. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I uh, did see one of the films that he did called Verkmeister Harmonies, and it's, like, a brilliant film. I love it. And it's probably about, like, two hours, 45 minutes long, right? So that's, like, to me, a long film, right? And then all of a sudden you come at me with, like, oh, here is a nine-hour film, like... That's insane, dude. That's that's like that's a work shift and a one hour lunch. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're hitting that's, OT that's a bit of an point. investment, bro. Yeah, yeah, you got overtime penalties coming. Um, <laughs> almost a per diem. <laughs> just to give some perspective but, uh, on this, uh, the top grossing films in the United States at that time, uh, just to kind of let you know what's going on in movie history. Uh, number one was The Longest Day. Uh, number two was Lawrence of Arabia. You got the Music Man at number three, Mutiny on the Bounty, To Kill a Mockingbird, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we talked about this, uh, I think, last episode or the episode before, wherein uh, the early 60s, uh, late 50s was kind of a 
an odd time. It was that William Castle era from matinee, you know? So <laughs> it was where the studios were kind of like, what do we do? And and the auteurs haven't really kicked in yet. So uh, there were some good movies that have come out. Um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia is pretty amazing. Uh, I only semi-recently watched uh, that in total, and I loved it. So, uh, you know, there's some good stuff, but just not quite the iconic uh, big blockbusters that we're talking about uh, from the studio, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, then you get into these foreign films uh, that were going on at that time, and and there was some amazing stuff going on. I.e., Eric Gary. I really enjoyed this film. Uh, Jason, what did you think about this movie? Dude, I absolutely loved this movie. Like, Good. Whole ass loved this movie. Like it, it like personal top one hundred, probably top fifty. Like. Loved the shit out of this movie. Uh, also, really interesting thing. I don't know if you felt the same way and 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 might be jumping the gun here a little bit with this, but like I got such heavy Tarantino vibes through so much of this movie. And, you know, with him being an influenced filmmaker, like I wouldn't be surprised if this film in particular was an influence on him. And he is my favorite filmmaker. So if he was influenced by this guy, you know, it would make a lot of sense as to why I had that reaction. But yeah. Loved this movie, and uh, we're gonna go ahead and get into why here. So, right. So, like, uh, I think that was when the uh, the Ronin showed up in the pussy wagon. That definitely had some Carantino vibe. I, <laughs> I saw that coming a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how that one worked? It's been yeah, a I was like, oh, that's Bill. where he got the idea of the pussy wagon. It was in uh. fucking Harakiri the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, dude. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, I'll say what, Ryan. Why don't uh, I don't know. You tell us a good place to start at the beginning at the beginning as always. So when this film opens, we're treated to an abstract image. It's not exactly clear at first, but we notice that there's both metal and hair arranged in a somewhat familiar composition. We've got harsh lighting from above as smoke swirls around the object and against a solid black background. Now, soon the mind's eye adjusts, and we understand that we're looking at samurai armor, while not being entirely sure if it's occupied. A suspenseful stabbing score, like something out of a horror film, underscores a number of quick cuts and Dutch angles that reveal the armor to be in a sitting position as the smoke continues to slither around it. Now from there, we cut to a flat shot of the armor, at which point the backdrop illuminates to reveal a traditional Japanese construction, at which point the narration from our protagonist begins. Now, shortly after that, Ryan, we've got a samurai that arrive at the gates of the Chinese temple, and that's when we get our official opening credit sequence. Uh, Ryan, did the was there anything about the credit sequence that stood out to you at all? Um... No, but I'm, I'm also <laughs> going to give myself up here and say that usually it's during the opening titles. This sucks. It really does. But this is just unfortunately the nature of the beast of what we're doing here. So, uh, I sacrifice for my art. Uh, this is when I'm usually starting off my notes. I'm writing some things, taking down uh, you know, s- some uh, opening bullet points that I want to mention on the, on the show and this and that. So uh, I'm kind of organizing myself during these opening titles. Uh, th- this is a problem that I have with foreign films, with the subtitles and the whole bit, is that I do feel like I miss a lot trying to take notes and look down and look up. I pause, I'm rewinding, uh, because you're, yeah. you have to kind of stay glued to the screen to focus on you know, reading what's going on. Um, 
But uh, at the same time, I have to also look down to take notes and focus <laughs> on my podcast. So it can be difficult at time. Um, I definitely find that it's a little bit easier when we're looking at some of like the slower films, you know. So when it's sure. like Solaris, you know, and there's right. not that much dialogue and we're hanging on these three to five minute shots. You know, there's plenty of time to sort of, you know, kind of take everything in. For me, like sometimes what uh, I'll find difficult is when you're watching like um, especially uh, Japanese animation. Um, but yeah, some of the foreign animated films where there's so much going on visually because, you know, it's designed in the original language, like to not be have to read subtitles. So they give you all this visual eye candy. And, um, you know, sometimes when you're having to try to, like, soak in all of that visual information and then juggle with the subtitles that are coming in, like, yeah, it can be a bit much sometimes. So yeah, yeah, I, I do know what you're talking about, man. So what's what did I miss about the titles? Well, so, okay, dude, I, this was a credit sequence that I thought was just super effective and I really loved it. So one of the things that we get from it's just it's like it's one of those credit sequences where it just really gives you time to settle into the film. You know, I feel like that's what a really great credit sequence does. Sometimes it can be just, you know, a great little short film in and of itself. I would say that's sort of like a like a Zack Snyder credit uh, or credit sequence often has that vibe or like a music video vibe. You know, like the the credit sequence for Watchmen is like an all timer. Sure. Um, but then you have a credit sequence like this where it just sort of presents the photography and gives you different visual images along with the score. And just does this for sort of like a few minutes. And I feel like from an audiovisual perspective, it just allows you to settle into like the rhythm of the film, right? So by cutting with the same sort of beats and using the same sort of images and sequencing that is going to come in the film, it allows us to sort of get in that mindset so that once it kicks off, we're kind of nice and established and ready to like just take off from the beginning. So I thought I did a really good job of doing that. And I really thought that the music was interesting too. just like these like super intense strings, like whoever was playing, it was just like playing the hell out of those strings, strumming it really, really hard, which is, you know, a different vibe than you get from some of the more, um, you know, traditional playing that tends to be a little bit gentler or something like that. So just really kind of interesting though, the, the mood that it set and the way that it allowed you the time to settle into it. That's what occurred to me anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this is, um, I believe it's pronounced, uh, Kuchin. It's, uh, the name of that guitar. We've mentioned this before, um, where it's the lap guitar that we've seen in movies like Kung Fu Hustle and, uh, it was in hero, as well, which yeah. I, I think uh, last season where we brought it up and uh, it was used as in the soundtrack of this many times. And it's that Asian seven string lap guitar. Um, again, they used it as a weapon in uh, Kung Fu Hustle to great effect. And uh, and it's a part of the score in this as well. And I believe that's what you're discussing in the opening of this film. And it uh, it definitely stood out to me as well. So much so that I had to look it up because uh, uh, we said we were going to last season and I never did. And I was like, fucking hey, here it is again. <laughs> what is that called? And it's See, called follow Kuchin. through, guys. That's yeah. what that's what Ryan brings to the program. Follow through. <laughs> the Asian lap guitar, man. It's sick. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and then after that, we've got the film that actually starts proper. And this samurai shows up to the gates of a temple and he explains that he was on retainer for the Fukushima clan. Again, sorry for butching the names in advance. And he uh, announces that his name is Hanshiro and that he's arrived with a simple request. And that is that he be allowed to commit Harry Carey, 
Harakiri. <laughs> it's so hard not to say Harry Carey all the I time know, because of that damn announcer. <laughs> if the moon were ribbed, would you eat it? <laughs> That's all I'm asking you. <laughs> Love that Will Ferrell bit that he, that, that character. It was so funny. But anyways, yeah. So uh, he actually uh, asks that he be allowed to commit Harakiri on their, you know, supposedly honorable grounds, which... Uh, if you haven't seen the movie yet, basically means committing suicide. And not just committing suicide, but doing so in a very graphic way that involves disemboweling yourself and making, like, a physical cross by going, you know, across sideways and then up through it as yes. well. So Harakiri uh, derives from uh, two words, uh, kiri meaning cut and hara meaning belly. So uh, it means to literally cut your belly open and let your intestines... Gush on the floor. Uh, cool. I'll bet you, I, I'll tell you, I'll bet you would have let me out of that dinner date had I uh, committed to this. Uh, you know. <laughs> Dude, if you, if you had committed Harakiri to get out of that date, like, I don't honestly, at that point, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I probably would have taken that personally. Like, wow, dude, this guy would this guy would rather disembowel himself than spend another five minutes listening to me drone oh, on. Oh, Jesus. Well... <laughs> That's what our listeners are going to I'm going to have to get back moment. at him later <laughs> find some way. <laughs> I'm not sure how yet, but... <laughs> so anyways, but um, yeah. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting, Ryan, is right off the bat, Kobayashi gives you some of his more sophisticated techniques, especially when you consider at the time. This is like you said, the 60s. So even just something, you know, we take for granted a lot of the techniques and the things that we get away with cinematically these days because of the last hundred years of conditioning. Um, so, you know, there's this instance where it shows our main character, Honshiro, and he's explaining his story. And then halfway through, it cuts to the guy that Honshiro was talking to, now talking to his superior, which is the counselor, and sort of picking up the story where he left off. So even though it's this, like, immediate cut, we still very much understand that, you know, he told the, Honshiro told the story earlier, and now this guy is repeating the story to his superior. And again, you know, that's something where at a certain point in time, uh, audiences would have been very confused. They wouldn't have been able to follow along. And I think that was right around this time that they were starting to do stuff like that and, and sort of getting that conditioning going to be able to do some of these more experimental techniques. So shortly after that, the counselor actually does grant his request and uh, he lets Hanshiro in. Now, Ryan, I know I just mentioned the photography and the credit sequence. Um, you're a big photography guy. You know, I know we've talked about, uh, you know, different films over the course of this program. Um, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire is probably the, the, the most prominent ones in terms of just like gorgeous cinematography. What do you think about the we cinematography? We talked about Lighthouse, uh, Heroes Over oh, Saturation, yeah. and like that was beautiful. Yeah, no, we've covered some pretty films in this uh, duration of this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So, what did you? How, what did you think about the photography in this film and how it Fucking compares to some of those awesome. ones? Fucking awesome, dude. So, for starters, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know what Criterion did or, or what these wizards do behind the scenes, but I thought it was so clear and tack sharp comparative yeah. to other films of this era. Um, even the restored version of Lawrence of the Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia that I bought on Blu-ray recently and and watched. Um, uh, you know, in, in in the best quality that I possibly could at my house. Uh, this is probably the most tack sharp, uh, so much so that I Googled, 
I was trying uh, on this deep dive to find out what the camera package and lens was that they use because if there's some vintage prime lens I could get a hold of that, uh, uh, you know, they were using to shoot films like this, I need to know about it because I want to have that in my collection. Um, <laughs> the cinematographer's name is Yoshio Miyajima and he shot everything for uh, Kobayashi his whole career. You see that a lot back in these days where these directors and cinematographers and like the, the, the director will pretty much line up a crew and that's their crew. So if you go see a David Lean movie or you go see uh, you know, Kobayashi movie or what have you, um, you're going to get like a lot of the, the same crew with them over and over again. I mean, you get that today too, but people do kind of swap out here and there to get different looks or different feels here and there. But uh, yeah, uh, so I, I wish, I mean, all it made me want to do was go watch Kobayashi's entire filmography. So I could, just so I could see more of Yoshio Miyajima's uh, cinematography. I thought this was fantastic. The lighting was cool. By the end, you get Dutch angles, um, there were lighting changes where they, the whole room would be illuminated and then all of a sudden the lighting would close in on one person, almost yeah. like a stage play, kind of like what mm -hmm. we've seen, uh, like in, uh, high and low or high low, excuse me, from last season, we saw some different yeah. things there where we mentioned that the way it was lit, the way that it played out on certain scenes, um, felt like a stage play. And, uh, this kind of had a little bit of that, uh, element as well, um, and, you know, I felt like the cinematography as you went along got more dynamic uh, where it needed definitely. to be and uh, definitely played on your emotions that way. So, yeah, I, I loved it all the way through. Badass stuff. Yeah. And, I, I, and I noticed it right away, too. Like what you're saying, it made me want to go on a deep dive. And unfortunately, I could not find any information. So, listeners, if you are out there and you know... Uh, more about Asian cinematography and like the cameras they were using over there, the lens packages and so forth. I would love to hear more about that uh, and where they were getting that stuff. Definitely, definitely. And it's one of these things, too, where you can tell that they shot the hell out of this film, especially oh, yeah. as it goes on, because especially like in the end, there's a lot of times where they're cutting back and forth on close ups and like each cut is a different close-up right like just at a slightly different angle right extreme right. close-up like modest close-up wide shot i mean he just worked the gamut in terms of covering his actors and, and i think too even just saying it now a large part of that is probably because of the limitations of the set like i'm just realizing now that we're talking about it the the whole thing really takes place at least, you know, because there, there's there's two elements, right? There's the, the, the present story and then there's the sort of flashback story. Right. But that present story is pretty much one location. And there may, might be a few rooms, but all of those few rooms look very similar. And I'm just now realizing that at no point did I really feel bored or did I feel like, oh, I've seen this a thousand times, you know? And I'm sure his ability to collect so much coverage and interweave that effectively... Um, you know, prevents that from getting bored. And then, of course, there's all of the constant sort of movement of the camera that he does. You know, instead of just getting, you know, a two shot, you know, he does that thing where he slowly pushes in over the course of the entire shot. And we see this employed 30 some years later by some of our favorite filmmakers growing up, like Paul Thomas Anderson, who did that in Boogie Nights in Magnolia all the time, right? It's right. never a close-up. It's always a push-in, you know, with the camera sort of tilting into a close-up. And I think that we really see a lot of that style of filmmaking established here in this movie with uh, by Kobayashi. I would be interested to... Uh, eventually get the criterion disc of this to see what the, I need to look up to see what the bonus content is. Cause I really would like to hear 
people talk about this film. I want to find out more about how it was made. Like I said, I, I did my best. I looked up article after article uh, to try to get some behind the scenes knowledge for you to bring to the table. And I came up dry. So uh, I don't know if just not a lot is known about Koibayashi's techniques or, or whatnot. But um, yeah, if you're out there and you know something about it, please let me know because I would love to know more about this. It looks fantastic. And like you said, it's very, very influential in uh, today's filmmaking as well. Definitely. Now, the interesting thing that kind of kicks off the story proper is Han goes and he gives this whole speech about wanting to commit suicide. And we then see that the counselor, who, again, is sort of like the manager of this estate, relays a story where they just had another samurai come and do exactly the same speech. Now, I guess technically this samurai would be considered a ronin. We'll get to that in a moment here. But what this does is this sort of sets off a level of suspicion. So there's now this sort of board of people, right, that sort of manage this property for this house of Liu, I believe it's pronounced, or Lai, I don't know, again, butchering stuff over here. And they're sort of discussing how they're the ones that communicate what's going on here on a larger scale. And they talk about how there's a scam going around for all of the different houses. So basically what happened is that there was a rash of samurais, and samurais are people that belong to a house, right? They're actually employed. And from what I understand, and Ryan, doing your research, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if those samurai no longer become employed, if they're the leader of their house gets exiled in this case or, you know, whatever happens, uh, they at that point become Ronin and Ronin are basically right. sort of like mercs and free agents. And it's 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 looked down upon. It's it's considered sort of less than samurai. Do I have that about correct? You do. Right. Oh. So the important thing to know about the history of what's going on in Japan at this time. Um, and seeing as how this is in Simpsons history, I'll, I'll take the lead on this, Jason, uh, and, and talk about world history. Uh, so to educate I've got listeners. nothing for world history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Absolutely I'm, nothing. And uh, for, for anyone, uh, you know, boned up on their Japanese history or for any of our Japanese listeners out there, I, I apologize if I'm messing any of this up. But this is to my best understanding. I did a little bit of uh, research on this because I'm very interested in Japanese history. I love this stuff very much uh, and Chinese history as well. Just all the Asian cultures uh, in, in the factions and the warring nations and all the tribalism and all of that and the unification of these things under generals and all of that. So you've got uh, for two about 200 years, uh, you've got a whole period of history. And um, uh, trust me, Jason, I'm going to summarize this very quickly. We're not going to go through 200 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So back at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. The story begins in 1996. <laughs> we gave this guy a long leash. Uh, no. You got the Sengoku period for 200-some-odd years, which started in 1467, which is the Warring States period. And basically, uh, for 200-some-odd years, You've got all these different tribes all through up uh, up and down the island of Japan that uh, are, are a feudalistic society. So um, it's all about this person owns this chunk and that person owns that chunk and they're, they're going to fight it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, this takes over that and then they have an heir to this throne. But it's all these warring tribes throughout um, Japan for 200 some odd years. And then uh, you had the Edo period, which uh, Edo is... Um, uh, another name for Tokyo. So that turns into Tokyo, um, which turns into the capital nation, uh, capital of the nation and so forth. But the Edo period starts in 1603 
which is where we pick up with our protagonist in this film. And in the Edo period, a general, a series of generals or whatnot, uh, there was huge battles that were going on. And eventually, after 200 years of this feudalistic warring of tribes, uh, one person or one tribe, rather, finally won out and took over the whole damn thing and was able to unify the nation. And so um, that's the Japan that we know today, pretty much. Um, and it was done for several reasons, uh, not the least of which was to... So th this was also around the era, era that um, you had westernization coming in, uh, taking over and influencing certain parts of Asia, whereas before Asia was always kind of left alone and, and left as a tra um, trading route. So you'd have Marco Polo coming in with his spices and all of this nonsense, and, and they, they would trade and stuff with the Western world. But Westernization was coming through uh, around the 1600s, even to America um, and, and all of this. And it was all done in the name of Christianity. So you had Christians coming to take over, uh, over Buddhism and all of that. So finally, someone says, enough, comes through, whoops everyone's ass, takes over Japan, and in doing so... All the samurai that were hired by all these warring factions as um, and belonged to them and their loyalties belonged to their masters. Once their masters were gone and they're down to just one ruler, uh, now they're ronin and they're left with nowhere to go. No, no play. They're basically run out of town and seen as outcasts. So they were like hot shit you know, a minute ago and now they're Jack squat and they're, you know, begging. Yeah. And so it was a huge turning of the tides for these samurai, uh, you know, coming as being heroes, war heroes and, and celebrated by their tribesmen and so forth as protectors and uh, keepers of the peace and so forth. Now they're Ronin and they're seen as shameful, uh, you know, um, bastions of the past, you know, that's how it used to be. And so, uh, and so much so that, uh, yeah, you know the these the ruler now is ruling through military, so it was all mm -hmm. the military that was running with an iron fist, and it let the nation flourish, and it kept the peace for 250 years. This went went on into pretty much modern civilization, um, mm -hmm. and it's still that way in a lot of ways today. There's your Japanese history, and now you've got <laughs> this Ronin, uh, who's our uh, you know our, our protagonist in this film. Uh, these Ronin were all rather than starving and seeing a similar fate as our uh, characters of Grave of the Fireflies and going that route, they would commit harakiri uh, or seppuku and kill themselves uh, to maintain honor. So taking this all full circle back to Kobayashi, this was kind of a statement on peace, but at what cost, right? So like uh, you lose humanity uh, for the sake of tradition and honor. And so this was kind of his statement of how did we get here uh, at what, because this also, this very mentality of uh, state and tradition and nation and honor before self and humanity. I mean, this got, got us uh, all the way into the kamikaze pilots of World War II, which, you know, coming out in 1962, probably being filmed in 1960, uh, Kobayashi was uh, also kind of seen as a post-war director. You know, uh, he had grown up in that era in the same way that, uh, you know, again, very grave of the Fireflies esque, you know, where he had lived through that, seen the results of that, seen what those traditions got his nation and where that ended them uh, with the dropping of the bomb, uh, bombs, plural, and the kamikaze pilots and all of that. And it's like, 
you know, fuck. And, and so you could trace those roots of nation and, and honor and tradition all the way back to the Ronin and the samurai. And here we are. Ta-da. <laughs> and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so should have a pretty good idea of what's going on now. And then that's going to go ahead and set up the backdrop for why uh, our main character and at least one other character uh, do what they do. Right. So after, yeah. So now after some debate, the board goes back and forth. We've got one person that's sort of advocating for him. A couple people that are like, nah, you know, it's all bullshit, blah, blah, blah. They ended up deciding, you know what? Let's go ahead. Let's let this guy in. You know, let's see if he's got this honor. Now, and the whole, uh, the whole, the whole sort of scheme that's going on is that these uh, Ronin that basically there's no way for them to get employment now. They're soldiers of fortune and there's nothing but peace out there. They can't get jobs. Nobody needs them. So what they do is they go to these houses and they say, I want to commit Harakiri on your property because there's a legend. And I think that's interesting, too, that we don't really know in the context of the story whether or not it's true. But there is a story going around that there is a Ronin that did that. And the house was so impressed by his honor that they ended up bringing him in as a samurai. And so now there's this rash of people going around and they're doing this. And the houses are sort of debating with whether they should just pay the people to go away or whether they should, you know, allow them to come in and execute themselves so that they can start to build these reputations and discourage other people from doing so. Because, you know, I mean, even just this one house that Hanshiro was, that's 12,000 uh, people employed. There was 12,000 samurais at that one house. And overnight, uh, they all lost their jobs, basically. So that's right. kind of what's going on here. That's why all of this really is important and motivates what... Hanshiro is going to do as well as this guy Chijiwa. So now that Chijiwa has been, you know, accepted, it's going to sort of set the stage for what's going to set up the whole plot. Right. And that's the fact that they're actually going to reverse what they said and sort of call Chijiwa out on his bluff. So basically they let him in and he's like, oh, sweet. You know, like they're going to make me a samurai because they appreciate it. And this whole thing's true and blah, blah, blah. But plot twist, they actually end up saying, you know what? We're going to go ahead and let you do that. Okay. We've talked about it. And yes, you're right. You know, you should, you should go ahead and kill yourself honorably. The men here at the house would be so impressed and it would be such an honorable thing to show them. Go ahead and do that. Right. And then all of a sudden they start to sort of backtrack. This guy Chijiwa is like, ah, I don't really know, da da da. And they're like, no, 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 no. We insist. So eventually he, we insist. he realizes Kill <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he realizes that he can't really turn back because they're being insistent. So, you know, there there's a, this whole scene <laughs> that, man, brutal, brutal Harakiri scene, probably about minute 30 or so into this film. And um gonna go ahead and set this up real quick and then ryan you can you can let me know what you thought about it so we're to this point where like i said the house has decided to call chijiwa's bluff and they're basically like okay go ahead and commit here harakiri here on the site we're gonna go ahead and make a big ceremony out of it so they bring everybody out they give him a spot to do it and then they bring out his weapons and they're like all right, dude, so since you're a self-respecting samurai, you're going to go ahead and use your own weapons to kill yourself, right? And he's like, uh... And then we learn that he actually doesn't have steel weapons. 
he has weapons made of bamboo. Yeah. And upon realizing this, they're like, you know what? Doesn't matter. Those are, uh, that's your weapon. You're apparently an honorable samurai. An honorable samurai would only kill himself with his own weapons. Therefore, you have to commit harakiri with these bamboo swords. It's Ryan, nerf or nothing. Tell us what you thought about this scene here, man. <laughs> it's nerf or nothing. Yeah, he's got the, <laughs> the nerf versions of samurai swords. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Not sure what he was doing. So even after watching this entire film, I never really gathered what his plan was. So I can only assume that he was banking on the fact that they were going to pay him off because we find yeah, out that that's it. he and his family are all in dire straits. Uh, his kid's sick, his wife's sick, and all of this shit. So they need money big time. Like, Grave of the Fireflies bad, right? So uh, he goes in there, and he's like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And then they're like, dude, this is this is really honorable that you did this. We're going to give you some nice robes. We're going to bring you in. He's like, no shit, it worked. And they're like, psych, here's some white robes. <laughs> now you got to kill yourself in front of a live studio audience and he's like whoa <laughs> this escalated real quick and they're like and you gotta use your nerf swords and he's like uh oh <laughs> so uh yeah uh pretty pretty gruesome he had to uh because his obviously these fuckers aren't sharp they're like training swords almost i would imagine is what you would use bamboo swords for is the only thing uh because sure. they're like safe you know and dull and now he's got a puncture his guts with this. Oh man. And it was so hard to watch. Um, it wasn't graphic, just, it was, uh, you know, empathetic where I, the yeah, way they I closed mean, in on know. his face and like the fear when he realized the shit he was yeah. in and how these things that like, kind of the, the tides turned, um, it was akin to so many horror films that I've seen where you think everything's la di da. And then all of a sudden, you know, things turn around and uh, all of a sudden you got a nail gun, you know, on your foot or something. It's like, <laughs> it just, it made me cringe to that, you know, in the sense that you're going one way and then it just made a knee jerk hard, right. And uh, yeah, now all of a sudden you're in some shit and the yeah. way, again, to your, to your point earlier, the way it was shot um, it's effective use of lighting and close ups versus wide shots to set the set and setting. Um, and, the satisfaction of the audience of um, lords that he's in front of, uh, you know, that we're all there uh, kind of making an example of him. Basically, not in our house. Uh-uh. You know, like this ain't happening yeah. here. We're going to make you fucking go through the shit and then we're going to make an example and spread the story around so that nobody else ends up on our doorstep doing this shit. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, as we find out uh, by the end of the film, they just fucked with the wrong kid uh you know wrong kid died uh, as dewey cox would say so uh anyways yeah uh yeah it was well, it was cringeworthy for sure what, what did you think yeah definitely one of the things i said at the top of the show is that i got heavy tarantino vibes yeah and this is actually one of the things it's it's exactly what you mentioned i remember uh when pulp fiction came out actually everybody was sort of horrified by the violence and then you had a bunch of critics and defenders stepping up saying like it's actually really not that graphic it's just that it's filmed in such a way that everything lands with such impact but like right. even the scene where you know Bruce Willis is going through and you know cuts the the pawn shop dude with the sword like you don't see some super gruesome stabbing and there's all these guts everywhere like it's just like a quick slice and you get a little bit of red across the the and then 
then, you know, even like when Marvin's head gets shot off, you know, you see the blood splatter against the windshield. So it's like there's a lot of moments in Tarantino films that end up appearing more graphic because of the weight with which they land. And I feel right. like that's part of this. And dude, Michael I mean, Madsen uh, stuck in the middle with you scene from Reservoir Yeah, Dogs, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. You really see the aftermath. Like the camera actually goes away from that moment when he's actually doing the part where he cuts the ear off, right? So... You hear the screaming in the background and you stay uh, for a majority of that with Michael Madsen dancing along with uh, uh, Steeler Wheels stuck in the middle with you as he's you yeah. know, grooving. And then he dumps the gasoline on him and the whole bit, you know, fucking with him. And uh, Jesus Christ, it's a heavy scene. But to your point, though, uh, it's not hostile it's not saw it's not graphic and gruesome and you know there's a quick oh, but dude, it, it's, it hits the same though dude when he's sitting there and he's just trying to jam like that bamboo to like puncture his stomach and he literally can't do it and then like he Oof. finally does and then and then like and then it's not enough that he actually punch punctures his belly with this thing the the second who the second is basically the guy who uh, stands there with the actual samurai sword and is responsible for cutting off the person's head to eliminate the pain once they actually go through with the act. And that guy just sits there and he's like, nope, not cutting your head off until you get that sword all the way from one side to the other there, right? Like a like a parent who's like, nope, no dessert until you finish those vegetables, <laughs> Mister. Right? And he's like, no I cutting off your bite. head until you yeah. no cutting off your head until you get that bamboo sword from one side to the other. And he right. just sits there and is trying to jam it across his belly, and it's so just cringe-inducing. You feel it, and and. To, and in the moment where the, the second finally cuts the dude's heads off, it was like, I've never felt such relief at someone getting their head cut off finally. It was like, thank goodness. Yeah, you should have put him out of his misery, misery seconds ago that felt like hours ago. <laughs> it kind of, uh, this is a terrible uh, analogy, but it did also kind of remind me, I have in my notes, that it kind of reminded me of The, the Great Outdoors. Uh, did you ever see The Great Outdoors with John Candy and Dan Aykroyd? It's been too long. I watched it as a kid. I haven't seen it in three Yeah, years. yeah. Do you remember the old 96er the steak that john candy has to eat and then he eats it all he finally gets through and he's like well what about the gristle he's not finished yet and he's got to eat all the gristle (laughs) he's been cutting off yeah and uh that was very much like uh you know (laughs) he's like uh, basically he he punctures his belly with this bamboo thing again to your point we find out that uh a lot of these uh seppuku performances or harakiri are done in um tradition only so you you get started with it but really it's just done as as tradition for honor but you get a second a homie that comes in that you're allowed to uh nominate like i want you and then uh he gets to come in and chop your head off which makes it quick and easy down and dirty in and out and the the second that he gets as a part of these lords or whatever that steps in again trying to make an example of him says, ah, 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 finish your gristle or, or whatnot. And uh, so he's got to keep going with this bamboo situation to get his guts to spill out. Then he gets the sword. Um, yeah. 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 Like I said, that was a rough one. <laughs> that was definitely rough. And then we cut back to the present and Hanshiro is unfazed and he's like, yep, totally all good here to kill myself. Not a problem at all. A okay, pal, let's go ahead and do this. And so they're like, yeah, all right. So that sets up the ceremony, and now Honshiro is going to do exactly what Chijiwa just did. And to your point, Ryan, so they get to actually request their second, and Honshiro requests a particular second, and it turns out that this guy's sick. 
And at that moment, Hanshiro reveals that he actually has some sort of a relationship with this Chijiwa guy that they just subjected to this horrible seppuku uh, performance. And so, and it's, it's these moments, Ryan, that sort of perfectly encapsulate what I loved about the film, right? Because there are these, not only are there these reveals that are actually somewhat surprising, you know, they're not telegraphed ahead of time, but it's the moments leading up to them. Like there's moments where you're waiting to see what one person is going to say and Kobayashi will do things like have his actor hold his mouth open a little bit and then slowly push into the camera and just draw out that suspense and anticipation mm-hmm. for those two to three seconds while we like wait to see what the person's response is going to be. Absolutely. And and there and, and you just so you compound all of those types of moments over the course of this, you know, roughly two hour film. And it's just so effective. Like it has such a. It has such an impact, like each of these moments on top of the other, you know? Well, to to your point, Jason, you're on, I think, a total of three sets, maybe four, uh, over the course of the entire movie. It's an over two-hour film. You're looking at almost two hours and 20 minutes, I think, two hours and 15 minutes, something like that. Um, and it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, you know, the, the whole plot is, you know, we could sum it up in 10 minutes and, you know, it's a back and forth. Well, um, we couldn't, but someone could. Well, someone could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to get into all kinds of Japanese history, and we're going to talk about Tarantino. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the whole plot could be summarized very quickly. It's a back and forth between one man going to commit Harikiri, uh, a Ronin, talking about another man that we open with that we, you know, get, kills himself with the bamboo. We cut forward, and then, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a Rashomon thing. It's a little bit like Hero uh, with Jet Li, where you have a man sitting in front of a group of Lords telling a story and we kind of cut back and forth between that, uh, that pieces together, uh, where, what's really going on here. And so, um, but pretty simple concept, but to your point though, it's, it's how he does it. It's the patience in which he unveils it all. And even when you know what's coming or when, when it happens, it's done to such great effect that I found myself being like, Fuck yeah! Like get him, bitch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was such. Good, there were so many cool moments like that. That uh, and it yeah. wasn't. There weren't uh, many like hyper action scenes. Although it does end with correct. One. Um, it's not an action movie. It's just these patient reveals and and great cinematography and the music builds and the dialogue and the acting and it's just such a craftfully made film that it makes you. Uh, really love it. And by the end, when you do get to some action, dude, honestly, if I had one critique of the film, it's that the action wasn't really done uh, that well compared to what we're used to seeing nowadays uh, from like a samurai kind of film. So, um, well, yeah, but I think it also, I think it also intentionally leaned away from that. Like, I think like, be like, because most samurai films are kind of like, crap story it's like they're like action films right you sort of get like crap story whatever dialogue and then you have these big fun giant set pieces and that's really what we're there for those big giant fun set pieces but this film goes out of its way to be about the in-between spaces right correct that's all that's what i'm saying at the end when they do finally have a battle kobayashi is like i'm gonna spend half of it showing you the grass (laughs) just blowing in the breeze yeah (laughs) Or just, you know, them posturing, you know, and kind of planning it yeah. out and whatnot. Uh, again, very much similar to the um, 
water fight scene in uh, some of the water fight scenes in uh, yeah. Hero, you know, where they would, uh, there was a little bit of throwback to that, or, or not throwback, I guess throw forward since this came out many, many years uh, before. But yeah, just as far as the, you'd see the strategy of the samurai or Ronin, uh, you know, planning their attacks way in advance uh, to know what their opponent was going to do and, and so forth. Oh, I bet you're going to do this and then I'll do that and so forth, you know, kind of talking about like a chess match. But uh, anyways, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And then so what we learn from there is we actually do kick in that whole flashback storyline. And basically we see that Hanshiro is living with his 11 year old daughter, Hiro, I believe it is. And uh, he also lives with this Chijiwa character who I believe is about 15. And they're living with Chijiwa's father as well. And they're all belong to the same house. Uh, they are samurais under the care of the, like I said, Fukishana I, again, I for I apologize for not being able to pronounce these things, but he's part of this clan, and you know, basically, the, what happens is the other father ends up killing himself and asking him to take care of his son Chijiwa, him being Hanshiro, that is, and so you know Hanshiro ends up sort of taking on raising Chijiwa as his own to a degree, right? And so now we sort of understand like, oh, wow, he was sort of like a father figure to this Chijiwa character. That we opened the film with, right. Exactly. And he was just put through this whole barbaric sort of ceremony, you could say. So obviously we kind of now understand like, okay, dude, this this guy's here for some level of revenge, right? We don't maybe 100% know exactly what's going on, but it's like, okay, you know, starting to starting to see what's going on here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's, a, you know, you're too like to exactly what, you, what you're saying is it's two samurais that are now Ronin. The master has already killed himself or been exiled. Uh, one decides to get commit Harry Carey, um, to, to do that. And then he tells the other one, our main character, uh, throughout the film, stay behind and watch the kids. You know, you got a daughter, I got a son, watch over my son, like he's yours. And, uh, and I'm going to go to the afterworld and I'll see you there. Great. So that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Now the, uh, now at this point, Hanshiro's making umbrellas and it seems like he's making them poorly. Uh, he's certainly making them slowly, and we see a lot of, you know, instances of him asking the landlord to, you know, give him a break on the rent, et cetera, et cetera. And then the landlord ends up countering and saying that he should give up his daughter as a concubine to the Lord, because at least that way she'll be taken care of. He's like, you know, no chance, no way I'm going to do that. And so his solution is to ask Chajiwa to take his daughter as his wife. And Chiji was like, I mean, that's fine, but like, I'm broke too, homie. Like, I don't know what you want me to do about this because I got just as little as you do, right? Um, but either way, he, he does end up agreeing. You know, they end up getting married, and we, you know, we don't see that ceremony or anything, but we cut to sort of them, and they have, uh, you know, they're living together, and we see that Hanshiro is actually quite happy, and the kids have had a baby. Uh, and the baby also, his name is Kingo little reference. I don't know if that was a reference to high and low, but maybe you think of high and low cause it's Kingo. Oh yeah, and, that's true. I didn't even think about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, and the other thing too, is we haven't really talked about this Ryan, but the, uh, the performance from this lead actor, uh, again, I'm probably going to butcher this, but if I'm saying it correctly, it's Tatsuya Nakari. Sure. <laughs> and yeah, no, he crushes it, dude. Like he definitely like I, I got strong like Toshiro Mifune vibes from him. Oh, know? absolutely. And, uh, yeah, definitely. And just, you know, I think he did a very good job of 
being broken, you know, appearing broken in this whole sort of present scenario, because by the end, we're going to find out that everyone he knows and loves is gone and dead. And, you know, he's also when we do see those flashbacks, like he's very compassionate, um, you know, good family man, but he's also still strong and all of that. And so I just thought that the, you know, the guy did obviously a really good job being able to strike those two. And you always felt sympathy. You were always behind this guy. And, uh, yeah, I know sometimes that's not, it's, you know, with those quieter roles, it can be a little bit difficult because you don't get those big showy pieces where you get to rant and rave or, you know, cry and have snot bubbling down or whatever. But, um, dude, FYI, homie's still out there acting, by the way, he's he's still out there crushing shit. Yeah. Good for that man. dude. Yeah. No, I mean, he's, he's gotta be up there. Yeah. No, he's yeah, definitely I guess he's, out uh, there. <laughs> he's uh he's uh he's Japanese uh our boy uh Max von Sydow, MVS. Yes. Yeah, yeah, That's he's, what it or, is. Or, he's uh, Japanese even, MVS or he's uh, definitely a Max Christopher von Plummer. Japanese or, Christopher Plummer. Or Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, he's one of those dudes, but the Japanese version. <laughs> God bless him. Awesome. Yeah, he's born God, in 1932. Guys, sorry. So. <laughs> um but yeah, so you know, he does a a, a really good job, but um, we soon see that uh, his daughter and his grandson Kingo, um, they get they get sick, and neither Shijiwa nor Hanjiro can get work, and they basically just start pawning everything. And that's when we see that the whole reason that Chijiwa ended up with those bamboo swords is that he pawned off the steel to be able to you know feed his family and try to get help for uh, their sick grandson. Uh, they literally don't even have enough money to have a doctor come visit the grandson, which Honshiro admonishes them for. But they're like, dude, what did you want us to do? And he's like, yeah, I guess you're right. I don't have any money either. So Chijiwa ends up saying, you know what? I got an idea. I'm going to go ahead and run out. I'll be back in a little bit with some money. Uh, but he obviously never returns. And, and by this point, we know why. Now, uh, to your point, Ryan, there is a really effective shot after that where the representatives from the house bring the body of Chijiwa back home. And that's where we get the shot that I think you were alluding to at the top of the show where, you know, they bring him in, they set him down, obviously, you know, the woman, everyone's grieving. And, you know, as they sort of, you know, go to walk away, like the lights in the background all shut down. And we just get this one spotlight from above. That's kind of on the three of them, uh, the dead body. And then the, the daughter and Hanshiro and, you know, just some really artistic shots like that that are, are really, really effective and serve to heighten the mood, you know, in addition to just being like an overall well-told story. Like he was able to insert some, like I said, really beautiful shots and, and insert, you know, a level of artistry in there that might not have existed otherwise with a different filmmaker. Yeah. So from there, we cut back to the present. And basically, Hanshro's like, look, guys, all I wanted you to do is not talk shit about my adopted son, right? Like, because (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing is they're talking about this Chijiwa guy and how dishonorable it was that, you know, he didn't use his own sword and his own steel to cut himself. And they were going to teach him a lesson and even trying this whole ruse in the first place. And by giving us the story... You know, Hanshiro's like, look, dude, like, we didn't have shit. You know, like, you guys could just as easily have been us. You know, we, we got kicked out of our house. We didn't have anything. Like, all this, the, the the worst sin that this kid committed was, yeah, he may have tried to get one over for you, but it was in the name of keeping his wife happy and healthy and also trying to, like, 
get help for his very, very sick son as well as his sick wife. And you guys just shat all over that. And all I'm looking for is for you guys to be like, that wasn't cool. Sorry. That way I can go ahead and kill myself and bring that to him. And that's basically, and again, that's one of one of those you know, honorable character motivations where like he basically just wants to be able to take something back to Shijiwa in the afterlife and say like, yeah, you know, you, you can die with some dignity now, or you can rest with some dignity and they couldn't even give him that. And that's where, you know, the whole, I think your statement, you know, of the oppressive nature of certain authorities and, and especially of the government at the time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's where a lot of those sort of statements get made, I think. Yeah, again, it's like, you know, you get you get peace and order and you get, you know, money. They they had a, at this time in Japan, they had a lot of uh financial success. Uh the economy was booming and all of that, but at what cost, you know? Um mm-hmm. at the, at, I guess if you just wanted to go live your life, but when you yeah, there was just no empathy um for for, you know, it was all about honor and tradition and all of that, but uh it was also about the military ruling things and so forth. So there was a lot of conflict between that. And um, and you lose your humanity throughout that process. And, and uh, again, uh, Kobayashi was seeing a lot, apparently. I, I don't know the guy, but uh, <laughs> apparently he was seeing a lot of that at the time in, in modern day, then modern day Japan. So, um, yeah. Also, a little bit of trivia for you. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but you, you did bring this up and then we kept cruising. I didn't want to interrupt you. But uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, uh, there are... Hanshiro character, the lead guy. Uh, did yes. you know that he was the inspector detective, head honcho detective from High and Low? Literally, the next movie he huh. goes to make after this is High and Low, and he's the head no inspector way. in that movie. So, a little bit wow, of a, that's crazy. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. Huh. So that 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 kind of makes me wonder if like the Kingo reference is even a little bit more direct. Maybe because I, I, I don't know, know if you saw too, but like Kobayashi actually joined up with Kurosawa and two other Japanese filmmakers shortly after this to make their own, like, sort of little director's group. Oh, shit. No, I didn't yeah, see that. Yeah, kind of like we were talking about on a recent episode, I forget which one, but about how um, I was reading that Chinatown book and, like, Robert Evans and yep, you know, yep. Bogdanovich and all of them had joined up. Matt yeah, May, literally the last they, episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, so this was basically, like, the Japanese version of that, and, yeah, it was Kobayashi, Kurosawa, and these two other guys, and... I think That's in similar up. fashion, it didn't really go anywhere, but I don't know that it was necessarily because of like petty financial disputes. Um, yeah. Again, I don't Yeah, but they were probably running a game over there anyway. So they're like, let's tag team this, you know, and see, you know, to pool our resources together and see what we could accomplish. Answer? Not yeah. so much, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so in wrapping up the, the, the story of the film here, so it, it's about time for Hanshiro to die, but... First, he's got something up his sleeve, right? We obviously know that now he has this relationship with Chijiwa, and he's going to expose a little something about all of this samurai honor that they keep talking about, right? Because that's what they keep coming back to, is like, he died dishonorably, you know, his his grift was dishonorable, his weapons were dishonorable, everything was about, you know, honor, 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 and dishonor, and dishonor, and so Hanshiro's like, okay, so, you know, gonna gonna show you guys a little something here. And before he goes through with the act, he throws out three top knots. Now, top knots, for those who don't know, is like the the bun part of the uh, hair of the samurai, right? Right. You can picture it right now. It's like a Brooklyn hipster's man bun. You just don't remove it. (laughs) (laughs) They can no longer be a barista after that. They're done. 
Game over. Absolutely. And these three top top knots belong to the supposedly six samurai. So I think we forgot to mention, but like there's there ends up being three samurai that Hanshiro requests as his second, and all of them are sick and not there. They're not at work that day, right? So that obviously tells them something is going on. So by the time we get to this reveal at the end, we see we find out that, oh, this dude actually went and hunted these three guys down. And two of them he was just sort of able to find and he cut off their top knots. And the third actually like made a big thing about it where he visited Honshiro at his house and he said that he wanted a proper showdown. And then that's where we get that nice battle at the end where they go into the field and we get all of the, you know, beautifully shot fields and and grass and swaying right. and you know it's just as much about the environment and the wind and the, the cover else art as it for is the, the poster for the film is is all from that one scene yeah when they're in the grass and stuff like that. yeah it's pretty cool yeah definitely you know and uh so you know hanshiro ends up winning that battle uh, and it cuts back to show that you know the three samurai basically all lied about what had happened because basically losing your top knot is like the most dishonorable thing you can do. I don't know where it counts. (laughs) It's hard to keep track of like where it is on the scale of being a Ronin losing your top knot. Right. Either way, they're pretty strict. And and if you don't do things a hundred percent, right, you're, you're a dishonorable, right? That's all it comes down to, which is like the worst thing that you can be. And so Hanshiro is basically like, here you are talking about all this samurai honor, which is why you dissed my my adopted son. And oh, look, the moment that it was convenient, all of a sudden your people lost that honor because they couldn't be honest with you about what had happened. So they lied about being sick and not being able to come into work. And then even when you went back to follow up, and say like, hey, can you make it? They were like, nah, nah, sorry, way too sick, got fever, can't do it. Um, so he exposes the hypocrisy of these sort of counselors and and the samurais and everything here. That actually ends up getting a rise out of the counselor. Finally, once and for all, he gets pissed off and the guards end up attacking Hanshiro. And, you know, he's able to sort of deftly maneuver through the house for a little while. But he's also taking L's along the way, Ryan. He's getting sort of cut up and uh, losing blood. And he basically fights his way to the armor. You know, he grabs it. He chucks it at them in a sort of fit of rage. And then that's when the riflemen appear. But before the riflemen can actually shoot him, he's going to take himself out, right? So Hans Hanshiro stabs himself before he can be shot. And, uh... It just leaves a big bloody mess there for everyone. Now, the last sequence is actually really interesting because it really just speaks to the nature of just them constantly covering up what's going on, right? How everything behind the scenes is not what it appears up front. Up front, it's all honor and respect and clean cut and this and that. But, you know, as with so many entities and people and corporations and all that sort of stuff, right? Like there's so much ugliness that goes on behind the scenes that's constantly being, you know, swept up literally. You know, we literally see them, uh, you know, sweeping up these dead bodies and sweeping up the, you know, the grounds. And so basically the counselor is like, hey, yeah, you know these guys that all died by this guy Honshiro's swords? Uh, They didn't actually die by him. They got sick and they all died. And so they're just perpetuating this myth where instead of this event happening, they're just going to sweep it all under the rug. Uh, they learned that uh, the Omadaka guy who showed up to battle Hanshiro, he ended up killing himself out of shame, committing harakiri. The counselor orders the other two 
a samurai that had their top knots removed to do the same. We don't know if they do or don't. And then, yeah, and then it just ends with them sort of cleaning up the bloody mess all over the house. And they're just going to cover this up like they've done seemingly so many other times. And that's Harakiri. It all gets lost in history. Yeah. Uh, yep. And then in that final scene, too, you see the two dudes like sweeping up the mess in the courtyard. And uh, the one guy picks up one of the top knots. He's like, huh. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> Cool. I wonder if he's uh, going to go tell anybody about that. Um, also, you know, throughout the film, we see um, uh, our, our protagonist in that courtyard. For for starters, the one thing I didn't understand is why Samurai had to, or Ronin had to commit Harakiri in like a courtyard like that. Like why it was necessary to go to a palace or a lord's house or something like that to commit the Harakiri why you couldn't just do it uh, in a town or or in a town square or something like that. Like I would imagine, uh, you know, the, the monks that light themselves on fire or something like you could just do that anywhere. Why do you need? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it has to do with with the honor and the progression, like to do it. Well, in but front did of, they, though, or was that just part of the whole scheme, like the whole grift? Yeah, I, I mean, well, that I thought the it was the grift existed because of the need to do that, not the other way around. It's that's what I took from it. Well, anyway. see, I don't think I don't think it was a need to do it. I think it was like one guy decided he was going to try this thing and it worked, and so then everyone else was like, "Hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that." But like, I don't know. But if that you didn't it was need the like courtyard, the why didn't they just be like, "No, go for it. Hundred yards that way. Go." Because they're not actually out. trying to kill them. <laughs> that's the thing. They're not actually trying to kill themselves. They're doing it as a ruse to hopefully get paid. They don't want to actually die. Get paid to it's do what? To go away. That was, yeah, that was right. the entire reason that Shijiwa did it because yeah, but he didn't want to actually Ronin kill himself. would come to these lords and be like, I am going, I need, you know, may I come here to do this Harakiri? And the lords would be like, look, man, I know you're down on your luck. Here's, you know, a hundred quid, just fucking kick rocks, yeah. bro. Yeah, and then yeah. get rid of them. But then it's like, but why'd they have to do it there? Like, why'd they have to kill themselves oh, in this palace? Like, why was it even like plausible for them to be approaching in the first place kind of thing? Like, yeah, like you come up it. and you're like, I want to commit Harakiri or, you know, or pay me or whatever the grift is going to be like any all those lords had to do is just be like 100 yards that way. Just go, you know, do your shit over there and we'll clean you up when you're done. <laughs> we'll shovel you in a hole or something. But uh, go be honorable over there. I don't know why. Well, I just, yeah, I, just, I think I think it's just one of those things where like that's not hollowed grounds. Right. Like, right. That's the only thing I think space of. is sacred because it's their space. And that's but what not. I do love is when, when our uh, when our main character is they, they put him on this like square pad or mattress of sorts and it's all white and they give you white robes mm-hmm. and all that. I'm assuming, you know, so the blood can be spilt on it or whatnot. Uh, yeah. But right behind him this whole time and in the original scene. Uh, when we see his kid uh, there in the opening of the film, there's a mop bucket sitting there. <laughs> and I thought that fucking <laughs> yeah. mop bucket behind him was the most haunting thing of the entire film because you knew what it was there for. <laughs> fucking crazy. Uh, one of the other things I, I took away from this film as well is uh, how nimbly um, Asians run in sandals or flip-flops. Have you ever tried to run in flip-flops or sandals? I bust my ass every fucking time. Uh, I think Jimmy Buffett even wrote a song lyric about it, uh, stepping on a pop top. So, uh, yeah. Fuck. Yeah, no, I'm the, <laughs> I have. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it's, you yeah, always I have mean, a you blowout. You telegraph yourself. It's a flap, 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 right? <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, I actually hate sandals, dude. I am I am not a sandal person. Not a yeah, also not a fan. And yet, uh, it did make me kind of go back and uh, now from here on out, from this movie in, in perpetuity forever, I will always be paying attention to uh, the Asian culture. Uh, the Eastern culture and uh, running in sandals and how nimbly they're able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking crazy. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that wraps up our uh, discussion over Harakiri. Ryan, as always, we're going to lead right into three adjectives. What you got, homie? For starters, I got clean. This is a mm. squeaky clean shot movie. Um, <laughs> there is nothing... I didn't love about the way this was shot and it was so fucking tack sharp. I can't stress that enough. This is so, so crisp and uh, really well lit. Loved it. Also uh, historic for all the things that I went on a huge rant about earlier and bored everybody to where they shut this episode off and no one's listening anymore. Uh, very <laughs> historic film. I love this shit. I think I said on the last episode, I am also playing Ghost of Tsushima uh, for the PS4. Also about the Ronin and the Samurai and uh, all of that as well. So uh, this era of Asian history is my jam. And I can't quite understand everything about it, but I'm trying and I'm trying to learn more about it. It's really, really interesting. I'd love to get over there someday. Also, lastly, methodical. This is a slow film, but it's very intentional. Everything they show you is for a reason. Again, just like we said earlier, uh, this film is very simple. It's um, uh, on very few set pieces. Um, There's not a lot to it. And yet uh, I was glued to my screen for the entire performance. It was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I I felt like nothing was it was never bloated. I was never bored. I was never looking at my phone except for to figure out uh, try and figure out history or or how they shot it or trivia because I was so engaged with how uh, methodical and, and uh, engaging this film was. Uh, how about you, Jason? Yeah, I did. Right, I mean, right on. Uh, so my first one is just engrossing. This is just a film where I like I was in it the whole time, you know, I mean, there's sometimes yeah, where it's right. like, yeah, you know, there's there's certain movies where. You know, you're in it for the most part, you're enjoying it, you know, and then there's certain times where you're like, okay, you know, this scene's kind of maybe dragging a little bit and then it picks up and picks down. But then there's those sort of, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, those films that just capture you and you're just like in every minute of it, you know, and you're hanging on every sort of word. And this was definitely one of those experiences for me. And then I thought that the film did a really good job. You know, it was simple, but it was also layered. And I think that, you know, again, just... Where the guy shows up and at first, you know, it seems pretty on the surface and then they tell this story about this other guy and then you're not really sure. And then they give you a little bit more that pieces this together and then they make this connection. So by sort of introducing, you know, layer upon layer over the course of the film, it, I think it does a lot to keep you invested and engrossed. And then uh, one of our, uh, you know, patented hybrid adjectives, so to speak, flawlessly composed. This is just one of those films where... Every single moment, the guy was in total control, you know, in this case, guy being Kobayashi, and knew exactly what he wanted, knew exactly what he was going for. I think that every single moment that he wanted to draw suspense out of, he was able to do so. I think that every time he wanted to be, you know, emotionally resonant, he was able to do so. I just think that every every single moment of this film, again, he was in complete control and took the film exactly where he wanted to Really, really, really impressive feat. Ryan, give us your formal grade rating for Harakiri. You know, I'm going to take a page out of the Jason Peters playbook. And and uh, uh, for once in my life, I'm going to rate this on the experience. Um, 
and so my initial rating, I wanted to lead more in the B plus area, but I just really enjoyed this film. And I thought that technically it was a great experience. Uh, Story-wise, it was a great experience. I was glued to my screen the whole time, so I just can't give it anything less than an A minus. So I'm going to go with an A minus on this one. Awesome, love it. Yep, deserves uh, deserves every bit of it. Uh, probably will not surprise you at this point, uh, or even just at the top of the show, to know that I'm giving this the full Jason Peters five out of five stars. Wow. Yep. One hundred percent. Full boat man. on this, huh? See, I think going full, but AA plus five stars, ten out of ten. Whatever rating system you got, put it there at the top, man. This is an all-time all time great right. film that absolutely everyone should see. It may not be for everybody. Some of the sequences, especially that first Harakiri sequence, is going to be squeamish. But that being said, for as as heavy as that scene is, I don't think there's another scene in the film that lands as heavy. Uh, so if you can, you know, find a way to get through that scene, that's definitely the worst of it. And you're not going to have to go through that again. And I also think it's very important to feel that level of visceral impact because... It's going to come into play later, you know, once the the Hanshiro reveal and we understand that Chijiwa was essentially his adopted son, right? Um, because now all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, that was a horrible thing. And, and now <laughs> Hanshiro's motivation becomes much clearer. So, yeah, full on, full on five stars here. Uh, recommend everybody to see Hara Kiri. And from there, Ryan, we're going to go ahead and we're going to look ahead to next week. But first... But first, but first. We've, got, <laughs> we've got some plugging to do, some good old-fashioned plugging. So, but wait, uh, there's more. But wait, there's more. Uh, so by now you should be familiar with the fact that we are on the Twitter and the Instagram, both at Esoterica Cinema, as well as we've got the email for all of you muffin lovers out there. That's not a euphemism. Of course, we want you to write us with how much you are enjoying the muffin or pastry that you are eating right now because we know that our audience is comprised of a large contingency of pastry adorers. You so, fucking muffin eaters. <laughs> Let us know all about it. Let us know all about it at esotericacinema at gmail.com. Though I suppose if you really want to, you can also talk about the program. You can talk about myself and Ryan, how much you love us, how much you hate us, how much you find what we have to say worthwhile or worthless. Who's to say? Uh, you can also hit us up to let us know about what films you want to see on our season three master list. That's right. As a reminder, first person to go ahead and send us an email with a suggestion for our next season's movie list. It automatically goes on there. Uh, I suppose as long as it's not triple X rated porn, uh, we'll just sort of pretend that we didn't watch that. But um, yeah, so go ahead and send us a <laughs> go ahead and send us that, uh, that that email with some suggestions or just anything in general. Uh, and then once again, as well, individually, I am Jason Aberrant and Ryan is either the Ryan Siebold or what? The real Ryan Siebold or underscore Ryan Siebold. See the uh, one? Yeah. So uh, I'm just going to take my own. Pl- <laughs> I'm going to start plugging, <laughs> plugging myself. I'm I did such a great job, though, dude. I don't know why yeah, you, you did do a great job. Uh, yeah. I'm the Ryan <laughs> uh, at the Ryan Siebold on Twitter and Ryan underscore Siebold on Instagram because uh, again, Ryan I, underscore Siebold on yeah, Instagram. That's no, the I one never I planned forget. on people having to find me a long time ago and now they do. And it's weird. So I got to figure that out. But in the meantime, <laughs> Yeah, just figure it out. Absolutely. And uh, also, as a reminder, 
we do have the website up and running and it is fantastic, man. I got to tell you, I'm really happy with how the site's looking these days. We got a lot of content on there. If you haven't gone and downloaded the master list for this season so you can follow along with our polls at the end of the show, go ahead and do that. It's right there. We've also got a fun animatic for you, the Flippers animatic. If you haven't seen that yet, definitely go ahead and check that out as well as some other info there. So once again, that's esotericacinema.com. Go figure, Ryan. Esotericacinema.com was available. I was shocked. I was like, man, ah, this is certainly going to be taken. And no, it was available. <laughs> See me? So, Not hey. so shocked. Not so shocked. <laughs> I knew it was going to be there. <laughs> and the last thing is we still got this giveaway going on. We're running a contest. That's right. 50 bucks if you haven't heard. 50 bucks. 50 bucks. For leaving a review. That's right. Now, not everybody that leaves us a review is going to get $50. Uh, we are doing a raffle. And if you want to enter into it, all you need to do is leave us a review on the old Apple podcasts. I suppose you can use Podchaser or a couple others as well. Spotify obviously doesn't have a review system yet. But uh, yeah, Apple would be preferred. And all you need to do is submit a screenshot of your review to be automatically entered. Two ways to enter. Twitter, at Esoterica Cinema, or email esotericacinema at gmail.com. Just send us that screenshot. You'll be automatically entered. And then on our next bonus episode at the end of this month, we will announce the winners. And then of course, you know, we'll reach out to you directly as well, just in case you're not listening at the time. So, but yeah, 50 bucks, leave us those reviews guys. And then let us know. All right. So Jason, since these Ah, happen at the end of the show. Yes. And they're plugs. Can we call this segment from here on out? Jason's butt plugs. I think we oh, need to call Jesus. it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's at the butt of the show. I, I don't know. Ugh, I got nothing. <laughs> okay, but then what am I to do with my actual collection of butt plugs? Well, that's for your other, uh, your other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can call it Jason Plugs Butts. Yeah, filling the void. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Jason. All right. Well, I suppose. <laughs> we'll have to test that out. I don't know. Maybe we'll do a little Twitter poll or something on that. But, uh, uh, you know, if you guys like uh, Jason's butt plugs, feel free to send us those emails and tweets. Let us know. Maybe, it'll, maybe you know, if you guys demand it, <laughs> who are so we to say no to you? Time. It's so way past my bedtime. <laughs> no more late night recording. Uh, Jason, let's figure out what movie we're watching next week so I can see how my week's going to go. Let's indeed. All right. We've got a new film. And of course, we are back on that random.org true random number generator. Screw Google's fake randomness. We got one through 200. Let's see what the dice have to say. Roll those dice. All right, man. So uh, the dice have pulled up number 68. So, Ryan, it occurs to me that what I should start doing, what we should start doing, is we got to give people time to look at this, right? So, 68 people, all of you people playing along at home, I haven't announced it yet. You can go ahead and check it out right now. You know what it is. The Shit, people without the list don't know, list don't know but you know exactly what it is right now. Because <laughs> you have the list, and you're looking at number 68 as we speak. So, so Ryan, uh, I'm going to come over here to our list and I'm going to look at 68. Oh, great, dude. Uh, this is going to be a fun one, man. I know this has been on both of our radars for a while. And that is a little film called Holy Motors. Ooh, visually exciting. Yeah. So, uh, Ryan, you got a little uh, description for us pulled up here. 
All right, Jason, Holy Motors from 2012, 2013, depending on when you were able to see this. Uh, looks like this is a French-Canadian film uh, by, oh no, another butchered name here, Leo Carax? <laughs> Uh, Why do we do this to ourselves? I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes has this. is driven around Paris by a loyal driver. A mysterious man dresses up in costumes and plays a number of strange, semi-scripted roles. Uh, That's I, it? I have seen the trailer for this. I remember when this came out. It looked mind-bogglingly weird. Mind-bogglingly yeah. is a hard word to say. Um, <laughs> this guy's kind of a you know, an auteur of sorts. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm really anxious to see how this all plays out. It looks weird as shit. I'm looking through the cast. Apparently, Eva Mendes is in this and Kylie Minogue as well. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, to all those listening, uh, it looks like we have got free watching options on Pluto, Voodoo, and then Sling if you have that. But that's not free. You're paying for that. Uh, and then uh, as well as Tubi. But 92% Rotten Tomato meters. So we'll see. I've heard a lot of... Uh, both sides about this film. Some people think that there's not a lot of substance. It's all visual. Um, so anxious to see how it plays out. Definitely. Definitely. I'm kind of getting like maybe a little bit of like a Jean-Pierre Genet vibe. So we'll have to see how much that comes through. Right. Right. Or even into awesome. the void. I think, uh, not the butt plug one, but like the actual movie. <laughs> well, are, you, are, you talking, are you talking about the void or enter the void? Cause those are, two uh, isn't films. it called enter the void? Well, Enter the Void is the Gaspar Noah uh, trippy movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've actually never seen that one. It's on our, it's on our, it's on our master list, ladies and gentlemen. Right, uh, but right. I actually haven't seen it. That's what this kind of reminds me of. Um, yeah, but I have seen The Void, as you all know. <laughs> you should all know, <laughs> well know my opinions on The Void. <laughs> <laughs> so, Holy Motors next week. Yeah, I'll definitely be checking that out. Awesome. So, yeah, guys, definitely check that out. Like I said, you got some free options online. Go ahead and give it on Amazon, YouTube, anywhere else. Holy Motors, 2012 French film. We will see you on the next episode to discuss on Esoterica Cinema. How many times has this happened to you? You have a sword. You're trying to find an exciting new way to commit seppuku. You could force your way into a respected temple and throw yourself prostate on a white cloth like you would any other act of ritual suicide, but why bother when you can now commit harikari in excruciatingly bold and painfully exciting new ways using the Robco Super Bamboo Matic 76? Yes, treasonous Ronin, the troublesome days of quickly cutting and gutting yourselves are over. Because Super Bamboo Medic 76 lets you do the job slowly and in the most physically agonizing way possible without all of that easy and painless cutting and gutting. Here's how it works. Own a sword, find a pawn shop, and trade in your steel blade. That's the whole blade using the Super Bamboo Medic 76 and then hide the swords so nobody can ever possibly question your integrity and honor. Yes, it's just that simple. Super Bamboo Medic 76 comes with 10 interchangeable bamboo sticks, a 9-month guarantee, and a booklet, 1,001 Ways to Commit Painful Seppuku. Super Bamboo Medic also works great with birch, oak, pine, and several other species of wood. Super Bamboo Medic, it's clean, simple, and after about 5 or 10 suicides, it gets to be quite a rush. That's Super Bamboo Medic 76. Never again worry about painless cutting and gutting. Order now. Pier 25, New York, New York. From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner in Whiteout.
Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout, available now in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.